following sermon, entitled The Days of a Mother's Purifying, was preached on the morning of June 12, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's Word this morning to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 12. We will read the whole of the chapter. And the whole of the chapter will be the text for this morning's sermon. Leviticus chapter 12. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a woman have conceived seed and born a man-child, then shall she be unclean seven days. According to the days of the separation for her infirmity, shall she be unclean. And in the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. And she shall then continue in the blood of her purifying three and thirty days. She shall touch no hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary, until the days of her purifying be fulfilled. But if she bear a made child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her separation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying threescore and six days. And when the days of her purifying are fulfilled for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring a lamb of the first year for a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering, under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation unto the priest, who shall offer it before the Lord and make an atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from the issue of her blood. This is the law for her that hath borne a male or a female. And if she be not able to bring a lamb, then she shall bring two turtles, that is two turtle doves, or two young pigeons, the one for the burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for her and she shall be clean. Thus far we read God's Word. Though it may not seem so at first, this passage of Scripture is both relevant and important for the New Testament church. That's true of the book of Leviticus as a whole. And that's true in spite of the fact that this book is composed almost entirely of ceremonial laws, that is, laws that governed and regulated regulated the worship of the Old Testament church, that is, the Old Testament people of Israel. And it is true that those laws have all been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and thus these laws are no longer in use today for the church. That is, the laws that are found in the book of Leviticus do not regulate how we as a congregation worship God Sabbath day to Sabbath day. And because that's true, one might be tempted to think that there is nothing here for us of any relevance, of any importance. But such a mentality would be mistaken. For the reality is that 
God speaks to His church through the book of Leviticus still today. That this passage is instructive for us because the truth and the substance of what this passage teaches us still applies to the church today. And that is indeed our confession as Reformed churches. That's the teaching of the Belgic Confession, Article 25. Belgic Confession, Article 25, teaches us how to understand the ceremonial law. And there we read, Article 25, we believe that the ceremonies and figures of the law ceased at the coming of Christ and that all the shadows are accomplished so that the use of them must be abolished amongst Christians. Yet, the truth and substance of them remain with us in Jesus Christ in whom they have their completion. What this article is teaching is that we no longer use and follow these ceremonial laws as a way of governing our worship, but the truth that they were intended to teach the Old Testament saints, that truth still applies to us. And that's true of the book of Leviticus as a whole. And that then obviously applies to this specific passage that we consider this morning. It's relevant. It's important for the church. And again, on the surface, it may not appear that way because on the surface, all we see is this law that says a woman who has recently given birth to a child was to be considered unclean for a period of time. After which period of time, she brought various offerings to the temple and then she was declared clean again. Though we do not have that same practice, nevertheless, there is important instruction concerning man. That is, there is instruction in the whole area of anthropology, the doctrine of man. This passage also has special significance for this particular worship service in that we witness the administration of baptism this morning. For this passage concerns a mother who has just given birth along with a child that she has given birth to. And this passage teaches us how to view those newborn babes and ultimately it reminds us that both we and our children stand in need of the blood of Jesus Christ to wash away our sins and to cleanse us as a people. So this morning we consider Leviticus chapter 12 using as our theme the days of a mother's purifying. The days of a mother's purifying. First, we'll look at the uncleanliness. Second, the cleansing. And third, the lesson. For those who are mothers in the congregation, Imagine that you have just given birth. You carried your child in the womb for nine months and in God's providence, you were given a son or a daughter. If you were living in the Old Testament times as a member of the congregation of Israel, this law says that as mothers, you would have been unclean for a period of time. That's clear from verse 2. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a woman have conceived seed and born a man-child, she shall be unclean seven days according to the days of 
the separation for her infirmity, shall she be unclean. Now, it's not talking about the physical uncleanliness that goes hand in hand with giving birth to a child. That's not, though that's true, that's not the point here of this passage when it speaks of being unclean. Rather, the idea of unclean is that a woman would be viewed unclean from a ceremonial point of view, from a ritual point of view. And that uncleanliness was a, a picture of the defilement, of the dirtiness of sin itself, of the guilt of sin, of the corruption of sin. That's the idea of being unclean as we found, find it throughout these chapters in the book of Leviticus. And along with that ceremonial uncleanliness came the fact that such an individual was to be keep themselves separated from the house of God. Verse 2 speaks of that fact when it says in the second half, according to the days of the separation for her, so long as it so long as an individual was considered unclean, they were to be separated. They were to keep themselves distant from something or someone. And now there's different viewpoints on what they were to be separated from. Some commentators take the viewpoint that a woman who's just given childbirth was to really separate herself from anyone and everyone. So that the only person or persons who she was allowed to be with was a maid or someone helping her take care of this newborn child. And some go so far as to say that not even the husband was supposed to be with her because she was considered unclean. However, I do not find any biblical warrant for that teaching that she was to be separated from her family and from anyone and everyone. Instead, the text itself tells us and specifies what she was to be separated from, namely, from the tabernacle and from the worship of God. That's verse 4. And she shall then continue in the blood of her purifying three and thirty days. She shall touch no hallowed thing. That is, nothing set apart for the worship of God. And then it adds, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying be fulfilled. What this is teaching us is that so long as she remained in her state of being ceremonially unclean, she was not to come to the tabernacle. She was not to enter into that courtyard. And the reason for this is the holiness of our God. Our God is holy. He's set apart. That is, He's pure. There's no defilement in Him. There's no sort of uncleanliness in Him. And in fact, He's so pure that in His eyes He will not even look upon iniquity. And now one who is ceremonially unclean, that is one who has this picture of being dirty on account of their sin, was not allowed to come into the presence of the thrice holy God. That's the explanation for this separation. When you give birth, you are unclean for a period of time. And so long as you are ceremonially unclean, you cannot come before the pure and holy God of heaven and earth. And that's what these laws of 
being clean and unclean really were meant to teach God's people was their need for Jesus Christ. These laws are teaching us that the only way to Jehovah God is through our Savior Jesus Christ. Through the sacrifice that He made and the the washing that He provides for us. That's the point of these laws. And now for the mothers in Old Testament Israel, there was a specified amount of time that this these days of purifying would last. If one gave birth to a son, that period of time was a total of 40 days. That's verses 2 and 3. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a woman have conceived seed and born a man and child, then shall she be unclean seven days according to the days of the separation for her infirmity shall she be unclean. Then on the eighth day she has her son circumcised, but then it adds in verse 4, and she shall then continue in the blood of her purifying three and thirty days. So seven, then the son is circumcised on the eighth, and then another thirty-three for a total of forty days. If as a mother you gave birth to a son. Interestingly, if you gave birth to a daughter, the time was doubled. It became 80 days. That's verse 5. But if a, she bear a maid child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, 14 days, as in her separation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying three score and six days. So 14 plus 66 gives us 80. Those days were the days of her purifying. And after that time, she then presented offerings at the tabernacle, at which point she was then declared clean again. Now before we get to the offerings and the cleansing, we have to take a step back and ask, what is the meaning of all this? What is the significance of this passage of Scripture? That is, why were mothers considered unclean for a period of time? That's a relevant question, especially when we step back and look at this passage in light of the whole of the Old Testament. That is, when we remember that God had commanded Adam and Eve already to be fruitful and to multiply. Why would God tell mankind to give birth to children, but then add this law that says, after you give birth, you're going to be unclean for a time. You are not allowed to come into My presence. And what is more, how does this fit with the testimony of Scripture that to be barren, to be unable to have children, was a grief. Again and again, we see women in the Old Testament church who are unable to have children. And it's a sorrow for them that they are unable to have children. And we wonder, how does that fit with, how does that match the fact that to have to give birth to a child was to be declared unclean for a period of time. From a certain point of view, this law does not make any sense to us. So what's going on here? Well, the wrong explanation of this is that it was not the birth of the child itself, but the bodily discharges associated with giving birth that were the reason for a woman's uncleanliness. 
Now, the alleged proof for that viewpoint is what we read in the rest of the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 15, the whole of that chapter is devoted to the fact that the various bodily discharges that we as humans produce would indeed make someone ceremonially unclean for a period of time. And there's even hints of that idea here in this chapter. For example, in verse 4, we read of the blood of her purifying. The blood of her purifying. And they say, see, it's talking about the blood that's making her unclean. That's the reason. While there may be something to that, that is, while that may be a part of the overall reason, it cannot be the main reason why a woman was declared unclean at childbirth and why there was this long period of time, up to 80 days of being unclean. That cannot be the whole explanation because of the separation between chapter 12 and chapter 15. Yes, chapter 15 will teach that even the menstrual cycle of a woman makes her unclean. Nevertheless, that's separated by all the different instruction about the the leprosy and the diseases of the skin that make someone unclean. And before we ever get to the uncleanliness associated with bodily discharges, we have this instruction well in front of it that giving birth makes someone a woman to be unclean. The fact that they're removed indicates these are two separate things. So it's not just a matter of the bodily discharges. Otherwise, chapter 12 would be incorporated into chapter 15. It would be a, a subsection of that overall chapter. So the wrong, or at the very least, the incomplete explanation is that it's merely the blood associated with giving birth that makes a woman unclean. The proper understanding is that a woman was declared unclean on account of the whole truth of original sin. That's the doctrine that comes out here in this passage. Now you will remember, original sin is not the first sin of Adam and Eve, but original sin is the sinfulness that each one of us is born with. It's original sin that led David to say that I was conceived in sin. I was shapen in iniquity and sinned in my mother. Conceived me. Psalm 51, verse 5. Original sin is the truth that we are born guilty. That we are born corrupt. So that it's not that which is outside of us that defiles us and makes us unclean. But uncleanness arises from within us. From within our hearts. And this passage is a vivid picture, a vivid illustration of that doctrine. Perhaps you've struggled to understand the whole idea of original sin. Perhaps you've struggled to explain this doctrine to your children. Well, insofar as that's true, Leviticus chapter 12 is a help. A mother who gave birth was declared unclean because she produced a child who himself or herself was unclean. To use the language of the canons of Dort, a corrupt stock gave, produced 
a corrupt offspring. The woman gave birth to one who was guilty, polluted, dirty, defiled on account of sin, and therefore the process of giving birth to that child made the woman herself unclean. So we have here an illustration, a picture of the doctrine of original sin. And it's in light of this that we reject the prevalent false teaching regarding man that he's basically good. That he's born innocent. That was the teaching of Pelagius of old and the whole doctrine of Pelagianism. Pelagianism taught that man is born good. And that he becomes sinful only because he's exposed to sin around him. That is, it's due to his environment. He, he learns sinful behavior by imitating those around him. But as a child, he was innocent. And this doctrine is still prevalent in the broader church world around us. If you survey the nominal Christian world, what you see is that same viewpoint that man is basically good. And even if you cannot say that about man, you for sure could say it about a child, like the child that was presented for baptism this morning. That one's innocent. He's never done anything wrong. How could you say he is a sinner? Well, we say that child's a sinner because of this passage and the whole testimony of God's Word which shouts out to us, our children are likewise unclean. Shapen in iniquity. Conceived in sin. So the explanation of this passage, the reason for this law, is the whole truth of original sin. That's the truth. That's the substance of this law that still applies today. Even though we no longer use, even though we no longer follow the law itself. That's the explanation of the uncleanness itself. But now what about that difference between a son or a daughter? Why 40 days for the one and 80 days for the other? Well, there have been many different explanations given trying to explain the reason for this. Most of which try to pin this to some sort of cultural reason. That that was their culture and how they viewed men versus women. However, whatever answer we give to this question must come right from Scripture itself. And the reality is that Scripture does not give us a clear, straightforward explanation for the difference. That is, it's impossible to say with absolute certainty and confidence, this is the reason for why there's the difference between 40 days for sons and 80 days for daughters. Two possible explanations that would comport with the overall, the overall teachings of Scripture would be these two. One possible explanation is the fact that the male children would be circumcised. You cannot circumcise a daughter. You can circumcise a son. And the fact that the son would have his blood shed, the fact that he would receive that sign and symbol of the covenant of grace means that the time was diminished. It was cut in half if you gave birth to a son. That's one explanation 
that's been given that may well be a part of the true explanation. The other explanation that's been given that would also comport with the overall teaching of Scripture is that this is a reminder of the role of the woman, of Eve, in the fall into sin. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, there is instruction about why women are not to serve in offices in the church. And part of the explanation is this. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in transgression. And some have said, perhaps rightly so, that that's the explanation for this law. It was the woman who was deceived. And this law then was a reminder of that because if you give birth to a daughter, the time of uncleanness is doubled. Could be. In the end, as I said before, it's impossible to say with absolute certainty this is the reason. This is the explanation for the difference. The main thing is whether you gave birth to a son or to a daughter, there was this period of time in which the mother was ceremonially unclean. But now praise be to God, there's more to this passage of Scripture than simply the instruction about being unclean. Because this passage of Scripture also sets before us the cleansing that takes place. But now I'm getting ahead of myself. We're not quite to the third point. Back up. We just established the main point of this passage teaching us the doctrine of original sin. That's instructive for us. And that it helps teach us and give us a proper view of ourselves and of our children. This passage reminds us who we are and what we are by nature. That is, we were dead in sin. We were defiled and spiritually dirty on account of our sins. So that it's not just there's this sinful environment around us and we've been corrupted from outside in. But this passage is teaching us that sin is something internal. Sin is something inside of us that comes to expression in our lives. And that's a, an important corrective even in the overall context of the book of Leviticus. Because if we had read chapter 11 of the book of Leviticus, we might have been left with the impression that it's that which is outside of us that makes us unclean. Because chapter 11 is all about the different food laws. The different types of food that were clean versus unclean. And you may not eat these types of food because these types of food, if you consume them or if you touch that type of an animal, that's going to make you unclean. These are the foods you're allowed to consume because these have been set aside as clean. And while there's important instruction about that, one could come, up, come away with a wrong understanding. Well, it's only that which is without. It's only what I take in. It's only what I consume that is ever going to make me spiritually dirty. Well, chapter 12 through 15 dispel that sort of thinking because chapters 12 through 15 all make very, very clear this uncleanness comes from within. This uncleanness comes to expression from a, a sinful 
heart were born this way according to Leviticus chapter 12. And on account of this uncleanness, on account of this spiritual dirtiness, we have no right of ourselves to come into the presence of Jehovah God. Of ourselves, we have no way of accessing His throne of grace. In our uncleanness, we would be separated from Him, barred from His presence. And it's important that we remember that. So important is this that the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us this is one of three things we need to know in order to live and die happily. If you want to live and die happily, you need to know first and foremost your sin and your misery. That's the importance of this passage. That's the relevance of this passage. But now it teaches us a proper view not only of ourselves, it teaches us a proper view of our children also. It's a reminder of the whole truth of Proverbs 22, verse 15, which we brought into a a sermon recently. That there's foolishness bound up in the hearts of our children. That although when a child is brought forward for baptism, although a child looks so innocent from an outward point of view, nevertheless, that child is still guilty. That child is still corrupt within. That is, that child is a sinner who stands in need of the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's knowing that we have to contend with a a sinful nature in our children that that then shapes how we parent and how we seek to raise our children. Now, praise be to God that there's more to this passage than only the instruction about how to view ourselves and how to view our children from a natural point of view. Because this passage also teaches us of the saving work of our God to purify us, of the saving work of our God to cleanse us. And there's a cleansing both for the woman and ultimately for the child. First, for the woman. That's the second half of this chapter. Verses 6 and following, we read this, "...and when the days of her purifying are fulfilled for a son and or for a daughter, she shall bring a lamb of the first year for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation unto the priest." Verse 6 prescribes two different offerings that the parents were to bring. First, a burnt offering. This could be a lamb, or as verse 12 indicates, if you were poor, you could bring another turtle dove or a pigeon. The burnt offering, or whole burnt offering, was unique among the offerings in that the entire animal was placed upon the altar and consumed with fire. That is, with a whole burnt offering, It was not the case that a portion went to the priest, nor was it the case that a portion was reserved for the one bringing the offering, but the whole of the animal, all of its parts, were laid upon the altar and consumed with fire. And that whole burnt offering then was a picture of devotion. Complete devotion 
to God. One was entirely consecrated unto Jehovah God, giving not just part of his life, but the whole of his life to his God. That was one of the offerings the parents were to bring. Second, there was a sin offering. Verse reads, that they shall bring a lamb of the first year for a burnt offering. That is a whole burnt offering. And secondly, a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And a sin offering, the name of it, helps teach us what it was. It was an offering specifically for sin, even as verse 7 explains the significance. Verse 7 tells us about the sin offering who shall offer it before the Lord and make an atonement for her. And she shall be cleansed from the issue of her blood. This is the law for her that hath borne a male or a female. The sin offering made atonement. And I trust the catechism students remember the whole idea of an atonement that we're talking about a substitute. That is, one to take our place. One to bear the punishment that we deserve and thereby make satisfaction. That's the other S word. Substitute and satisfy the, the justice of God. To bear the punishment that we deserve so that we could then be right with God. That's what was, that was the symbolism, the picture of that sin offering. It was a picture of the atoning work of our Savior. So two offerings. And the result of bringing these two offerings is that the woman who was unclean from a ceremonial point of view was then made clean. That's why these are called the days of her purifying because at the end of the days, she was then declared pure. And that's made explicit in verse 7 when it says, and make an atonement for her and she shall be cleansed. That is, she would be made clean. So that when the mother gave birth, she was declared unclean. When she brought these offerings, she was declared clean again. She did not remain unclean indefinitely. And having been declared clean, she could then come again into the presence of God. No more was she barred from the holy things. No more was she to remove herself from the worship of Jehovah with the assembly of God's people. So two offerings. And these two offerings obviously point us to the saving work of Jesus Christ. To the One who made the once for all sacrifice for sin. That is, Christ did not have to offer Himself again and again and again. But He did it but one time. It was a perfect work even as the book of Hebrews teaches us in chapter 9. Hebrews, Hebrews 9, verses 25 and following says this about Christ. Nor yet that He should offer Himself often as the high priest entered, entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must He often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath He, Christ, appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. 
Christ offered Himself but one time. And what that teaches us is that all of the different offerings that are prescribed in the book of Leviticus all find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So that the unique significance of each offering is a different aspect, a different way of viewing the one offering of Jesus Christ. So that Christ is the fulfillment of that whole burnt offering. Because Christ was entirely devoted unto His God. He was perfectly consecrated. He did not keep parts of His life back. He did not say, I'll give you this, God, but this is Mine. Do not touch this part of My life. Instead, He was devoted, consecrated perfectly, completely to Jehovah God. All that He ever did was in service to His God. He's the fulfillment of the whole burnt offering. He's also the fulfillment of the sin offering. Because by His sin offering at the cross of Calvary, He made atonement for our sins. That is, He went as our substitute. The One to take our place. The One to bear the punishment we deserve. And you will remember that punishment was much, much worse than the fires of that Old Testament altar that consumed the sacrifice upon that altar. For what Christ endured was far worse than that He endured the fiery wrath of God poured out upon Him as He hung there on the cross of Calvary. And He did that as our substitute so that He might satisfy the justice of God so that the debt would fully be paid so that God could be righteous in declaring us to be right with Him. Christ is the fulfillment of these offerings. It's on the basis of His work that we too are then cleansed. That we who were spiritually dirty and defiled on account of our sin are washed, purified, cleansed with His blood made spiritually clean So that just as the woman, the mother, could now enter into Jehovah God's presence again, come to the tabernacle, so too can we now come before our God. We can fellowship with Him. We can worship Him. We can speak to Him and hear Him speak to us because of the saving work of Jesus Christ. The way for an unclean sinner to come to the clean, pure, and holy God is through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that work is all the more amazing. That saving work of Christ is all all the more amazing when you look at it in light of everything that we learned in the first point. For our Savior Jesus Christ did not come to save those who were basically good, but maybe had a couple spots or blemishes here and there. He did not come to save those who were born innocent, but 
simply because of a, a bad environment. They, they got caught up in it and they, they learned to sin that way. But He came to save those who were born dead in sin. Or to use the figure of Ezekiel chapter 16, He came to save those who were like children, newborn babes still covered in the blood associated with their birth, left for dead out in the wilderness. That was you, and that was me. A newborn child still covered in blood, exposed to the elements. And Christ came into this world to have His blood shed so that we might be cleansed. That's the saving work of our Savior. That's the good news of the Gospel as it's set forth in this Old Testament passage of Scripture. And what makes this even more beautiful is that this cleansing is not just for adults, but it's for our children too. And that comes out in the fact that there's reference to circumcision of the children of the sons. Verse 3, And in the eighth day, the flesh of His foreskin shall be circumcised. Circumcision was a picture of the covenant that God had established with His people. That's clear from Genesis 17, verse 11. And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant between Me and you. So circumcision is a a token, a picture, a symbol of the covenant God establishes with us. And what is more, because it's that, it's also a symbol of the righteousness that we have in Christ. That's Romans chapter 4, which speaks of the sign of circumcision as the seal of the righteousness of faith. That is, the, the righteousness which we have in Christ by means of faith. That's the meaning, the symbolism of circumcision. And now, this passage with many others is saying this is applied to children. Not just to adults, but to a son who's only eight days old. Teaching us that our children are included in this covenant. Teaching us that our children are righteous in Jesus Christ. That what Christ did at the cross and going there as the sacrifice, as the offering for our sin, He did not only for us, but also for our children. So that though they were born in sin, nevertheless they too are cleansed. And is that not what we saw pictured in front of us this morning with the sacrament of baptism? It's exactly what we saw pictured. A young child brought forward a child conceived and born in sin who had the picture of Christ's blood applied to Him. Reminding us of the truth that even our children are washed and cleansed in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what we saw pictured. And from all of this, there is one 
fundamental lesson that we need to walk away with this morning. One lesson this passage teaches us more than anything else. And that lesson is that as parents, we must bring our children to Jesus Christ. We're to bring them to Christ. That is, to the only One who was conceived and born without sin. We bring them to that to our Savior who was conceived by the Holy Ghost. And because He was conceived by the Holy Ghost, and because of the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God, was kept from all that corruption so that the the guilt of Adam was not imputed to Christ, so that the sinful nature of Mary was not passed on to Him. We go to the sinless one. To the sinless one whose parents, nevertheless, kept this Old Testament law. That's what the New Testament tells us. In Luke 2, verses 22 and following, we read this, and when the days of her, Mary's purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they, Joseph and Mary, brought him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. The mother of Jesus Christ Himself went through the days of a mother's purifying. Joseph and Mary brought a burnt offering and a sin offering to the temple in Jerusalem. And we ask, why? Not because that child was unclean. Not because the child was born a sinner but because that child was the sin-bearer. Because our iniquities were laid upon Him. That's why Mary was not given some revelation from God. No need to bring the offering because this child is sinless. Instead, she too kept this law to remind us that our sins and iniquities were imputed to Christ. And for that reason, He then carried our sins all of His life long until He bore the punishment for them at Calvary by laying down His life as a sacrifice for our sin. That's our Savior. And the lesson of this passage is as parents, we must bring our children to Him. Because we recognize unlike Jesus Christ, our children are born, conceived and born in sin. And thus they need a Savior. They need a cleansing. They need a washing. And only Christ can provide that. That's why as parents we bring our children to the waters of baptism. That's why we have the water sprinkled upon them as a picture of the reality we trust has already been applied to them, the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why as parents we bring our children to church. So that just like the parents brought their children in the Old Testament to the tabernacle to see the high priest, to see the sacrifices, so too we bring our children here so that they see our high priest Jesus Christ. 
so that they see at the same time He is also the offering upon the altar. The One who gave Himself to die on our behalf. And this is why as parents, we must bring our children to Jesus Christ in all that we do. In all of our instruction. Whether we are in the home, whether we are by the way, the lesson of this passage is bring them to Christ. Because they were born in sin. There's salvation only in Christ. And therefore our calling is to set before them their Savior day after day after day. May God so give us the grace to do exactly that. Amen. Our Father in Heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word. And we thank Thee for the opportunity to look at a passage that at first glance may seem irrelevant to us, but yet be given the opportunity to see that there is rich instruction for us. That there is instruction concerning who we are by nature. And at the same time, a reminder of that glorious Gospel that our sins are washed away in the blood of our Savior. Apply this Word to our hearts. Cause it to bear fruit in our lives. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.